All right, well, uh, good morning, and thank you for joining us today. I missed you guys last week as I was guest preaching uh, at a friend's church up in Northern California, but I was encouraged to hear that uh, worship was fantastic uh, last week, and so uh, just really, really uh, just blessed by our community here, blessed by our servants and our leaders. Uh, we have communion today, so I'm going to get right into the message, and so we're going to continue through our series on the Gospel of Mark. And if you have your Bibles, please turn to Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 13. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 13. It's also going to go up on the screen uh, for you, and we'll be reading from the ESV. May God bless the reading of his holy and sufficient word. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, With some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And and there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Amen. Amen. The word of the Lord. In our passage today, we have another confrontation between Jesus and the scribes, Jesus and the Pharisees. And just to let you guys know, this is not the last one. As we keep going through the Gospel of Mark, you'll see these confrontations continue to escalate. Escalate. Now, if you didn't know, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were the religious leaders of Israel during Jesus' day. They were considered the scholars and experts of the law, on the law of Moses. And they had been leading for over 150 years. So their authority was well established. And as Israel was becoming increasingly influenced by Greek and Roman culture, these leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, they were zealous to maintain the religious identity of Israel. They were zealous for Israel's purity. They wanted to lead Israel back to a renewal and a revival towards the word of God. And so for the Jews in their day, the road to orthodoxy, the road to devotion, the road to Jewish discipleship would have gone through the scribes and through the Pharisees. But now Jesus has arrived, and he's preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, and he's doing it with a power and an authority that no one has ever seen. Jesus has healed the sick. Jesus has casted out demons. He's fed the 5,000, and he's even walked on water. And the people are amazed. 
They're so amazed that they're all gathering in hordes, coming from all the towns nearby before Jesus. And the scribes and the Pharisees are losing their minds. They're hearing about Jesus, and as you see in the beginning of our passage, Jesus is in Galilee. That's in the north part of Israel. And, and, and from Jerusalem, these leaders are going to check out Jesus. You see, they see Jesus as a great threat. They see Jesus as a disruptor to their religious authority. And when they meet him, and when they hear what he has to say, when they hear his teachings, they are furious. They're furious that Jesus won't conform to their way of life. They're furious that Jesus has the audacity to tell them that they are wrong on Moses. Okay? These men that have devoted their lives to the study of the Torah, Jesus is saying, you guys have Moses wrong. Jesus taught differently on what it meant to obey the Sabbath. Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners, something that the scribes and the Pharisees never would have done. Jesus' disciples, they do not fast like the disciples of the Pharisees. And in our passage today, Jesus directly calls these leaders, these teachers, hypocrites and false teachers. We see the tension escalated, escalating, and we can foresee what's going to happen when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. The title for today's message is Vain Traditions and the Heart of God. Vain Traditions and the Heart of God. And as we look at our passage today, we're going to see three things. One of these days, I'm going to say two, and you're going to be like, oh, right? Three things. First is this, the desire for tradition, okay? The desire for tradition. There's something in us that actually wants tradition, okay? There's something about it that's, that's natural. We need it. So there's a desire for tradition. And then second, we're going to look at the danger of tradition. And finally, freedom from tradition, okay? So the desire for tradition, the danger of tradition, and finally, freedom from tradition. Every culture needs tradition, Every culture just does. This is true for the church. This is true for our families. We have traditions in our families. Hopefully they're healthy and good and not dysfunctional and divisive. We have traditions for our society as well. Our traditions help us tell the story of who we are. Our traditions help us identify what our values are. As a child, I remember being in Korea one summer vacation and thinking that it was so strange that there were no fireworks on the 4th of July. I mean, I was like, how can you guys not have fireworks on July 4th? I was like, what is wrong with you Koreans, right? What is wrong with you people? But looking back, I realized it's, it's, my, it's an American tradition. 4th of July is a uniquely American holiday, something very important to us in this country, but completely unimportant to the rest of the world. You guys get that? To us, it is so important. It means barbecues, cookouts, block parties, fireworks, gatherings, special sales, right? Fourth of July sales. But just go across the border, and it means nothing in Canada. It means nothing in Mexico, right? Completely unimportant to the rest of the world. One could say that in America, in America today, we're actually seeing a crisis over culture and tradition. What does it mean? to be American today. What does that look like? See, there's an old phrase, it's a, and it goes like this. It's as American as apple pie. You guys know that phrase, right? It's as American as apple pie. 
But what if you don't like apple pie? Or what if, what if you've never had it? Does that make you less American? Are you less American today if you can't speak English? Are you less American if you kneel at a football game during the national anthem? Are you less American if you don't have grandparents who fought in World War II? Unfortunately, there are some people in our country that say, yes, you are less American. They'll say, I don't care what your citizenship says. I don't care what you believe about yourself. If you do not check these certain criteria off in in their minds, you are less American. For many, what it means to be American has more to do with tradition and culture than citizenship or your actual ideals regarding our Constitution. Now, why is that? Why is that? Why does culture and tradition have such a prevalence in what we understand to be like essential to our identity as Americans? Uh, I think the reason is this. For most of us, the Constitution feels too general, right? Or it's, it's too foreign. It's like this like document. It's, it's ancient, and we know some of the ideas, but we're actually not that familiar with it. And even though that's supposed to be like the basis, the foundational doctrines of our country, we, we want something more tangible, than the Constitution. Yes, we know that, that to be American means that we value the freedom of speech and religion. We want to safeguard rights to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. Those are great, but we want something more concrete. We tend, as humans, to be more applicational than theoretical. We want to know what to do. So we try to define what being American looks like by how we talk by how we behave, and so on and so forth. It's very natural to shape our identity around tradition, our identity around culture, holidays, music, food, education. I want to say this. I grew up in the South, and, and I ended up going to a, a privileged private school, and uh, in junior and high school, I would talk a lot about culture, and my friends would talk about music, and um, they would talk about all of these bands that I had never heard of, like the Rolling Stones, and you too. And the beat, I knew of the Beatles. I didn't know any songs besides the Yellow Submarine, right? And then so suddenly, like in my own school, even though I was born in North Carolina, lived my whole life in the South, I felt less American. I really felt like a foreigner and an immigrant, but in reality, that feeling wasn't me being less American, it was just me being less white. But that's not what my friends projected on me. They did project me as somebody who was an outsider who didn't know what it meant to truly be American. Well, the same was true for the Jews in Jesus' day. You see, the Jews knew the law of Moses. They knew the Ten Commandments. But in the minds of many, those commandments were too general. They're actually too vague. And so they would ask the question, well, what does it really mean to honor the Sabbath? What does it really mean to take the Lord's name in vain? What does it mean to honor your father and mother? And friends, we've all kind of asked that as well, right? As we're thinking about what it means to follow Jesus and obey God, and we get to the Ten Commandments, and we're like, I get it, but what does that look like? We all want to know the application questions of those doctrines. So in order to fill in the gaps... The Pharisees did this. In order to try and apply what the law really meant, the Pharisees established what was called the oral tradition. 
The Pharisees established what was called the tradition of the elders. And this is where we see confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees consider their oral tradition, the tradition of the elders, on par with the law of Moses. And Jesus is going to push back. Now, this oral tradition, it was considered, considered offense around the Torah. The Pharisees were so concerned with not breaking the law, okay? They, they, I mean, they were devote, devout. They were devoted to God, okay? Uh, they were wrong on so many areas, but one thing you can't wrong them on is zeal and sincerity, okay? They absolutely meant it. They really wanted to live for God. They really wanted to live holy lives. They were really committed to, to the law of Moses, and they were so committed that they didn't want to break these Ten Commandments that they created hundreds, if not thousands, of little laws around the law of Moses, just to protect themselves from possibly breaking any of the core commandments of, uh, of the law. Does that kind of make sense? So they created additional laws that addressed every conceivable application. If the Ten Commandments were the general laws of following God, then the tradition of the elders became the practical applications of actually obeying him. Once again, I share this. The problem was this. The Pharisees had elevated the oral tradition to the status of the law of God. We see this in our passage today. The Pharisees see the disciples eating without first washing their hands, okay, without first washing their hands. And so they ask Jesus this judgmental question. Have you guys ever asked a judgmental question where even if they respond, they're kind of like, like showing that they're doing something wrong, right? Uh, one example was like, have you stopped hitting your dog or something like that. It's like, you know, like I was going to say something else, but I, I stopped. Um, so they asked this judgmental question. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now we too might judge someone for poor hygiene if they don't wash their hands before they eat. If you see that directly happen, you're like, I see your dirty hands. Wash your hands before you eat your tacos. You might judge them. Parents are always telling their kids to wash their hands, and so parents carry around hand sanitizer and wipes to keep themselves and their kids healthy and clean. There's nothing wrong with that at all. It's a good thing. But the Pharisees' concern, they, it was not hygienic, okay? It had nothing to do with hygiene. It had everything to do with religion, everything to do with being clean and pure. You see, here's the thing, guys. There's no Bible verse there's no Bible verse requiring Jews to wash their hands before they eat, okay? So here's the other thing about traditions. Not all traditions are bad things, okay? A lot of traditions are good, okay? A lot of traditions are good. They're fine. You can establish traditions in the church. You can establish traditions in your family, like Friday night dinner or Saturday morning movies or prayer or whatever it might be. Those are all cool things, right? We just have to put them in the right place. Now, there's no Bible verse that requires the Jews to wash their hands before they eat. There's no Bible verse that requires the Jews to wash their hands after they come back from the marketplace. So we have to ask, where did this come from? Where did the Pharisees come up with this? And why is this expectation so heavy? Why is it so weighty? Here's where it came from. It came from a man-made application of the Torah. They looked at the Torah, they saw a commandment, and they built a fence around it. They built a fence around it. You see, in Exodus 20, 
In Exodus 20, uh, God is teaching Israel about worship. And in Exodus 20, the high priest was commanded to wash his hands before he entered into the tabernacle for worship. So the high priest has to do this. If he didn't, God says, he will surely die. And so the high priest would, as he enters into the, the first level of the tabernacle, there's this thing called a bronze basin a bronze basin filled with water. The high priest goes up to the bronze basin. He washes his hands, washes his feet to remind himself and to remind Israel of their need for purification before he enters into the holy place. This ritual was extremely important in the worship of God. And the Pharisee says, that's important, that's good. Let's bite that and let's apply and extend this practice to everyone. Purification is important to everyone, not just the high priests. And so they created this oral law, this oral tradition, that the Jews would maintain their purity as the people of God in the midst of a Gentile culture, in the midst of outsiders, in the midst of Greeks and Romans, that as they wash their hands all the time, right, before they eat, after they come from the marketplace and plenty of other cleansing uh, rites and rituals that they would always remind themselves and everyone else that they are holy, pure people. The Pharisees were obsessed with being religiously clean. It is said that 25% of their oral tradition was concerned with cleanliness. That's OCD, guys, right? If you think we have problems, they had problems, right? For example, you would be considered unclean if you came into contact with Gentiles, lepers, tax collectors, corpses, uh, women who were menstruating, Samaritans, uh, even at a marketplace, okay? This is how, like, over the top they were. If a Gentile's shadow went across your food, that food was considered unclean, okay? That's in the oral, there ain't no Bible verse that says that. It's just, they just, they're like, that's how unclean the Gentiles are. If their shadow goes over your food, right? But as you read through the Gospels, you see that Jesus and his disciples, they come into contact with all of those types, with lepers, with tax collectors, with women who are bleeding. Jesus raises the dead. He talks about the good Samaritan. And so in the eyes of the Pharisees, Jesus and his disciples, they were unclean and they were unrighteous. But Jesus responds to the Pharisees' judgmental question with his own accusation. He actually escalates, and I, and I, and I love that. They say generally in conflict you shouldn't escalate, but uh, in, in Jesus' case, it's appropriate. It's a righteous escalation. He responds harshly, saying, well did Isaiah, okay, that means Isaiah did a good thing, right? Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. He quotes the prophet Isaiah, and he calls these Pharisees hypocrites, okay? That they are false. They are just as guilty of sin as Israel was during their time of rebellion in the Old Testament, and so this is a weighty accusation because the Pharisees were actually trying to lead Israel back to God. They're actually trying to lead Israel back to right, their covenant relationship with God. And they're saying the way to God is through his word. 
And if you want to obey his word, you have to follow along with our oral tradition. But Jesus says that your worship is false, your teaching is false, your methodologies are false, your perspective is false, and your hearts are false. You are giving God nothing but lip service. That is his accusation. This leads us to our second point, the danger of vain tradition. The danger of vain tradition. Jesus is clear when he talks about the sin of the Pharisees. He says they've become so obsessed with their own tradition that they've lost the commandments of God. In verse 9, he just restates this. Verse 9, he says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. I don't do too much grammar in my sermons, but in the Greek, this word for establish Okay? It means to erect or set in place. Okay? It's that the Pharisees are building up their own system, building up their own laws, building up their own teachings. And in doing so, they are breaking down and rejecting the commandments of God. And Jesus gives an example of how they've done this in verse 10 to 13. I think this, these are one of those passages, uh, these, these verses are some of those verses where you read them in your devotion, and you're like, I don't really get it, and so you just kind of keep reading. Uh, I'll, I'll try to do my best to unpack this for you. He's referring to the fifth commandment, right, of honoring your father and mother. The commandment is clear, right? Honor your father and mother, okay? If anyone reviles their father or mother, uh, he shall... He's worthy of death, right? So it's very, very important. Uh, and then this is what he says in verse 11 regarding the oral tradition that the Pharisees are teaching. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. So what is korban? What is this? It was created by the Pharisees as a way for people to make offerings to God, okay? So you could take your possessions, okay? You could take parts of your estate and you can devote them to God as an offering. But here's the thing. You didn't have to give those up right now. So it was similar to like deferred giving, deferred giving. A person could dedicate goods or property to God without immediately letting them go. And so until you die, those things, are, are, they, they, they remain in your estate. They remain under your control. And as soon as you die, those things that you dedicate to God as korban, they would be given to the temple, okay? It's kind of like a, like a trust in certain ways and deferred giving. And so the policy was this. If you dedicated something to God as korban, then it meant it was off limits, off limits to family, maybe even off limits to debt collectors, that people couldn't come after those assets because you gave those things to God, right? You gave those things to God. You maintain possession of it, but it's treated as a trust and set aside for the Lord. Now, that seems well and good, but one commenter said the, real, the commentator said the real heart is this. A man goes through the formality of vowing something to God, not that he may give it to God, but in order to prevent someone from having it, okay? But in order to prevent someone from having, this is what Israel was doing. They were saying, I have this property, I have this land, I don't wanna give it to my parents, I don't wanna give it to my children, I don't wanna give it to my neighbor or um, 
people that I owe stuff to, I'm going to dedicate this as korban, and it's off limits. Here's the crazy thing, okay? Whenever you want it back, say your parents pass away, or say, you know, people coming after your stuff, they just disappear, you can get all of that back. You can annul your korban with 50 shekels. So you go up to the Pharisees and say, hey, can we just cancel that? You know, I said, I know I, know I said I was going to give my property to the Lord, but I changed my mind. So here's 50 shekels and um, we're good, right? And the Pharisees were allowing this. The Pharisees were allowing this. And so there were people who were not taking care of their parents. They were not honoring their fathers and mothers. They were keeping their resources to themselves. And Jesus says, you're breaking the fifth commandment. You might be doing things right according to the teaching of the elders, but that teaching is making the commandments of God null and void. Do you see how a clear command of God to honor your father and mother has then been rejected by this human tradition created by the Pharisees? And what Jesus is saying that the is what Jesus is saying is that the Pharisees are guilty of making void the word of God. And he's saying that this was no accident. He's, saying, he's telling Pharisees that you didn't just forget the commands of God. You weren't just ignorant or indifferent to the word of God. Instead, what you have done is intentionally put something in the place of God's commands. You have intentionally replaced the word of God with your own word. You've replaced the commands of God with your own traditions. And brothers and sisters, you know what this is? This is idolatry. This is idolatry at the heart. Simply put, idolatry is anything we put in the place of God. Anything that we put in the place of God. When you seek your security in money rather than God, you're making an idol of money. When we find our identity and our worth in your work, your education, then those things have become your idols. When you seek your ultimate happiness in comfort and success rather than God and the gospel, that's idolatry, okay? It's taking God and the things of God and replacing them with the things of this world, with lowly secondary things. Now I wanna ask this, what makes us do this? What makes us replace the things of God? What, what leads us to this kind of idolatry? What tempts us towards creating our own man-made traditions and replace the commandments of God? Is it because we think we know better than God? I don't think so. I don't think the Pharisees had that kind of hubris. Is it because we don't love him and we're not devoted to him? No, once again, I don't think that's the case at all. The Pharisees believed that they loved God. They believed that they were devoted to him. What makes us do this? I believe the answer is found in our hearts and the idols of control and approval. You see, underneath, underneath legalism, underneath this oral tradition, underneath the, the rules and regulations that we like to create in the church and in religion is this idol of control and this desire for approval. You see, we are always asking the question, are we not, how much is enough? How much is enough? Am I living rightly before God? If I die today, will I surely go to heaven? You see, we read the Bible, and we read the commands of God, and we're not always sure whether we're guilty or innocent. We're not always sure if we're doing enough to say, yes, I obey. Yes, 
I'm living up to this kind of righteous standard. Or no, I need to repent. No, I need to change. No, I need to confess. We're not always sure where we fall on that scale. Brothers and sisters, we all struggle with our own versions of spiritual insecurity. We're prone to self-doubt. We're prone to self-condemnation. So what do we do? No one wants to stay there. No one wants to stay in that, like, I don't know where I stand with God purgatory. So we do our best to protect ourselves. And the way we do this is through legalism and tradition. You see, we try to keep score. The more we can keep score, the more we can control, the better we feel about ourselves. Are you guys, like, any of y'all, like, big into competition, big into keeping score? Somebody was like, Pastor Mike, you know, when I play golf, I don't keep score. I'm like, it's because you're not good. Right? It's not, I know, I'm so mean, right? I'm so mean. Don't play golf with me, guys. Right? But there's so many of us. Like, you don't want to play sports or you don't play games if there's no winning, if there's no keeping score. And we actually want that in religion. We want to know that we are doing well. We want to know that we are thriving and flourishing. We want to feel good about ourselves. No one wants to come into church every week and just feel beaten down and inadequate. And so we keep score. We look for things we can control, things that we can do well, and then pat ourselves on the back. You see, for some of you, tithing is actually very easy. The Bible says 10%, right? And you're not in financial hardship. So you cut that check every month. You give it to the church, and that's that. Even our app is called Easy Tithe, right? <laughs> our app. So there's some, for some of us, Tithing is not a difficult thing. You have the metric, 10%. You have the means. You give it to the Lord, done. Right? For others of you, you hear that commandment, honor the Sabbath. And you mean, you're like, okay, that means I go to church every Sunday and I don't work on Sundays. Well, it's, and for some of you guys, that's very accessible. That is not hard. Your job is Monday to Friday. Right? You get weekends off regularly. So you're like, okay, I can go to church every Sunday, honor the Sabbath, don't work, boom, bam, done. And you feel okay about yourself. Check, winning. And we're tempted to do this with all phases of the Christian life. Everything from quiet times, how many did I do this week? And you kind of have your like, you know, you grade yourself on a curve. Maybe if you're hardcore, you're like, I need to go seven out of seven. Maybe five out of seven's good. Maybe one out of seven is okay for you. And you're like, right? going to prayer meetings, attending small groups, going on missions, serving uh, the church. We create as many metrics as we can so that we can keep score, that we can have some semblance of control regarding our Christian life. Do you know what verse really haunted the Pharisees? It actually wasn't these kind of like clear commands. Tithing, they crushed it, guys. They tithe everything. They tithe all of their finances. They tithe even their mints, right? Whatever like little food supplies that they had, they even tithe those things, right? That was easy. You know what haunted the Pharisees? It was the command found in Leviticus 11.45. And this is a command repeated all throughout the Old Testament. This is what God says. He says, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy as I am holy. 
And when the Pharisees read that, they're like, what do we do with that? How? I mean, tithing, one thing. Going to worship, one thing. Waking up early in the morning to pray, no problem. Read the Bible, no problem. But what do we do when, when God says, be holy, for I am holy? How do we put a metric around that? That freaked them out. But rather than being floored and recognizing that there is no one like God, that he is completely otherly and set apart, you know what the, you know what the Pharisees tried to do? They, they rolled up their sleeves and said, let's try. Let's, that's what God said, let's go for it. And they tried with all of their might to be holy. And that's why they created laws upon laws upon laws. They said, holy is righteous, holy is pure, and we are going to be as pure as absolutely possible. We don't even want a Gentile's shadow to go over our food. That is how zealous we will be and how hard we will work at trying to be holy like God. Now, in their zeal to try and keep the law, something happened to the Pharisees. They forgot the purpose of the law. And here we can find, when we recover the purpose of the law, we can find freedom from the vain traditions of man. This is our third point and final point. How do we experience freedom from vain tradition? First way is this, by understanding the true purpose of the law. When we do this, we won't be tempted to build upon our own laws and create our own traditions to try and justify us and keep score and make us feel good about ourselves. It's one thing to know the law and it's another thing to know the purpose of the law. The apostle Paul in the New Testament, he tells us what the law's purpose is. In Galatians 3:24, he says that the law was given to serve as a guardian. Okay? Some of your translations might say schoolmaster. The law was a guardian for us with the purpose of driving us to Christ. Okay? So the, 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 the law was our tutor. The law was our schoolmaster to teach us about God, to teach us how to live, but the ultimate purpose was just to press us and drive us to Christ. Now, that's not what the Pharisees did. You know what the Pharisees did with the law? It drove them to works. It drove them to depend upon themselves. It drove them to create more laws, to try harder, to create more traditions, to depend on themselves, when in reality, the law was to be their tutor, their schoolmaster, their guardian, to press them to Jesus so that they would look at the law, the high standard of the law, all 613 laws in the Old Testament and say, I cannot fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. I need a savior. That's what the Pharisees were supposed to do. Instead, the Pharisees rolled up their seeds and says, let's try, let's do this. We can do this. The second purpose of the law was to expose our sinfulness. Okay, the first is to drive us to Christ. The second is to expose our sinfulness. In Romans chapter seven, verse seven, Paul's writing again on the law. And Paul writes that he would not know what sin was except through the law, okay? If you read Romans, it's fascinating. And he talks about how the law exposed to him the reality of sin. I would not know what it was except for the law. The law was a light shining upon his heart, light shining upon his mind and his life and showing him all of his rebellion, all of his uncleanness. 
You see, the Pharisees, they tried to use the law to cover up their sinfulness. Just think about that. They tried to use the law to cover up their sinfulness, to say, you know what? We're not breaking the Sabbath. We are honoring our fathers. We are pure. We are holy. We are worshiping. Why? Look, look at all the things that we are doing, all the additional laws that we are satisfying. They're using the law to cover up their sinfulness when in reality the law was to expose their sinfulness. That was the purpose of the law, the twofold purpose of the law that the Pharisees forgot. So how do we find freedom? The final answer is this. We experience freedom from vain tradition through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul finishes talking about the law in chapter 7. And just as he talks about in Galatians 3, it, it leads us to Jesus. He presses to Jesus because in Galatians, in Romans 7, he has those famous verses of like, what I want to do, I don't do. The things I do, I, I don't want to. And he's like, oh, wretched man I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And he's just agonizing over his inability to obey the law and fulfill their law. And then he looks to Jesus. And in Romans 8, we have these sweet words. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Do you see that? See, there's something that the law does do. It shows us our sinfulness. And there's something the law cannot do. The law cannot save us. Okay, the law can expose your weakness, but the law cannot provide for you strength. The law can identify you as a sinner, but the law cannot be your savior. And this is where all of us stand. In the presence of a holy God, our response cannot be, I will try harder next time. Or I promise I will not do that again. I'm going to live differently. That cannot be our response to the holy law of God. Our response needs to be more like Isaiah, who in the presence of God says, woe is me, I am ruined. I am ruined before a holy God. You see, we cannot look at the law. We should never look at the commands of God and say, you know what, uh, those are manageable. I think I can do some of these. Ten commandments, I think I can do seven out of ten. That should never be our posture. That should never be our approach to say, oh, the law is manageable if we can just do this. If we can just manipulate and tweak this. No. Our posture towards the law needs to be through the lens of Christ, through the work of Christ. And as we see Jesus, you see that Jesus is the one who fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law on our behalf. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ lived the life that we should have lived. He is the only one on this earth that fulfilled all of the requirements of the holy law of God. And here's the amazing things. Here's the amazing thing about the gospel. As you believe in Jesus, as you receive him in faith, his victory, 
his righteousness, his sinlessness, his perfection is yours. Look at that. Verse four, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Guys, if we look at ourselves, that's completely false. You and I cannot fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, but the gospel is one of substitution. The gospel is a great exchange where we give Jesus our filthy rags of unrighteousness, our failures, our sin, our idolatry, and Jesus gives to us his perfection, his obedience, his holiness, his goodness, and his righteousness. That is the exchange of the gospel. Would you consider Christ again? Would you consider the commands of God And would you trust in him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your word and for your gospel. We confess that we are so prone to want to control our relationship with you. We want to control our spiritual maturity. We want to control our growth. We want to control our our faith. Would you forgive us of that kind of hubris and that kind of idolatry and help us to look to Jesus Christ, Jesus who is our Savior, Jesus who is the only one to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. Help us to see Jesus as our champion, Jesus as our substitute. Help us to trust in you, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.